please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 19. This is part two of the consideration of Job 19. I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown of my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my, fa- my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, How will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. I don't know if you've ever thought about the relationship of faith and repentance. In one instance, the Bible tells us, such as in Mark 1.15, repent and believe, where both Repentance and faith are included as necessary to be saved. In another instance, the call to the sinner is simply repent that your sins may be blotted out, Acts 3.19. In yet another instance, the gospel comes as believe and you will be saved, Acts 16.31. So we might wonder, is salvation through repentance or is it through faith? And the short answer is that repentance and faith work together. They are found together. Nevertheless, the Bible doesn't say we are justified by repentance, 
but does say we are justified by faith. And yet there is no salvation without repentance. And so faith must include repentance. And the reason I bring this up in introducing the sermon is because I want you to think about how when you, and let's make it personal, when you first went to God in prayer, repenting of your sin, confessing it, seeking pardon, you would never have done that if you didn't have faith. What I mean is that without belief, without faith in the mercy and grace of God to forgive your sins through Christ, it would really, if you think about it, it would be crazy, it would be dangerous on your part to go to God confessing your sins. It would be something like a mob boss confessing to his crimes even though there had been no offer of immunity. He'd be signing his own death sentence. And similarly, our natural inclination, and in part it makes sense, is to want to hide our sins. Talking about our natural inclination. Uh, it's, It's to not confess them to God because of the perception that God hates and punishes sin. But that response is what makes sense only if you are leaving Christ out of the picture and are not trusting in him. It's belief in God accepting Christ's sacrifice on your behalf that gives you the confidence to approach your holy and just God and tell him about all of the sins you've committed and to ask for forgiveness. It's faith, you see, that gives you the boldness to repent. I've brought this up because it reminds me of what Job is doing here in chapter 19. He is insistent that he is a person who should expect mercy from God and from his friends. And how in the world can he say that with any credibility unless he is convinced that his sins have been dealt with by God in his grace? Apart from atonement for our sins being made, how can we as sinners ever expect mercy from God? You understand, mercy is the opposite of judgment and condemnation. How can we ever expect anything but judgment and condemnation unless our sins have been dealt with? And so when Job calls out for mercy, he is essentially asserting that he is right with God, that he should not be treated like an unbeliever, which takes a certain level of assurance and confidence uh, that in Job's case is born out of faith. It's his confidence that leads him to express what sounds perhaps like a rather odd desire. He says that he wants what he has said in his defense to be put down in writing as a permanent record, a kind of monument in stone to his innocence. How else should we interpret this desire but as a bold statement of assurance that he is right with God and expects to be vindicated by God? He is insistent, unapologetically, that God has put him in the wrong, verse 6. That God has touched him, verse 21. And yet, at the same time, he expects mercy. That perspective can only be born out of faith. That God has not utterly cast him aside and given him over to Satan. And yes, God has touched him. But he is not outside of the reach of mercy. Last time we considered this text under the theme of Job's call for mercy, and we considered the first point uh, under that theme, what, uh, what it is that led Job to call out for mercy, and we considered the tormenting words of Job's friends, who have, as verse 5 says, magnified themselves against him. They have used his disgrace as an argument against him. They've used his trials that he's going through as proof of his sinfulness 
as proof of him being worthy of God's wrath. And then there was consideration of Job's experience of God putting him in the wrong and closing his net about him, verse 6. And uh, that God put him in the wrong, if we were to translate that very literally and woodenly in the Hebrew, it would read this way, God has, has made crooked me. God has made crooked me. And interpreters, commentators wrestle with exactly what that means. Job may be accusing God of making justice crooked toward him. Job may be saying that God has made Job's path crooked, which would make sense. His path was once smooth and pleasant. Now it's been very crooked with all of the trials that he has experienced. Job may be saying that God is treating him as though he is someone crooked, a sinner who presumably deserves judgment. Regardless, Job doesn't believe God has been treating him in a way that corresponds with what he knows of God and his ways. It's like, as he goes on to describe, it's like God has mugged him and left him to suffer. It's like he's a city and God has come against him, has laid siege to destroy him. There's something crooked about what's happening happening to him that these things would happen to him as a faithful child of God. I'm talking about from Job's perspective. Crookedness is a problem because Job knows God is behind what has happened. And furthermore, in explaining what has compelled Job to cry out for mercy is the fact that all of his friends, his relatives, acquaintances, you you name the category of human relationship, these people have given him no mercy. How God and man has treated him is what compels him to plead for mercy. Which brings us to why. The second point under the theme of Job's call for mercy. In verse 21, we have what I have taken as the theme of this chapter, namely Job in his sense of forsakenness, calling out for mercy. And the desperateness of his cries is brought out by this twofold repetition, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. At this point, he's calling out to his friends. And the reason given for why he desires their mercy is that the hand of God has touched him. It's worth contemplating, is that really true? Is is Job correct in saying that the hand of God has touched him? Back in chapters 1 and 2, we were given a glimpse into what happened in the spiritual realm. We're given a glimpse behind the scenes. In chapter 1, verse 11, Satan says to God, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. What does God do? Well, in verse 12, we read, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In a later interaction between God and Satan, Satan says in chapter 2, verse 5, But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And then verse 6 records the Lord's reply, Behold, He is in your hand, that is in Satan's hand, only spare his life. So in some, it was Satan's hand that struck Job, not God's. Satan destroyed Job's possessions. Satan killed Job's children. It was God who directly struck Job with loathsome sores. It was Satan who did these things. It was Satan's hand that accounts for why Job is troubled and now calls for mercy. And yet, at the very same time, it remains true that Satan did these things 
with the full permission of God. In fact, God was even the one who first called Satan's attention to Job. He asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He calls Job his servant. He praises him as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil and then hands him over to Satan with certain limits. In the end, God is sovereignly in control, which is why Job and his friends have, in a sense, correctly concluded that God has done these things. They don't realize Satan's direct involvement. They don't recognize Satan's evil designs and what has been done, but they know that God is ruler of this world and that nothing happens apart from his plan. And yet the involvement of Satan in Job's troubles is a significant aspect of what is going on that Job does not see and doesn't appear to understand. And today there are things that Satan does against us. Satan hates God, he hates his people, and his goal is to persuade believers, including you and me, just like he did with Job. His goal is to persuade us that God is against us. In reality, God is not against Job. He's not against you, believer. He's not against any believer. God allows Satan to do what he does, but God's motives, God's goals are entirely different than Satan's. Job and his friends did not have much of a place in their theology for Satan. And if they had, they would have known that there are real forces of evil that are active and powerful in this world. And Job has longed to better understand what is going on in his life and in the world. And part of perhaps what would have helped him is to know something of Satan's role. But Job doesn't understand these things, and so he can only look to God to set things straight. But meanwhile, Job is wavering in his hope. Notice that the cry of verse 21 for mercy is directed to his friends. Back in verse 7, he cries to God for help, but those pleas for help are not answered. He's not getting justice, so he calls out for mercy from, its, from his friends. I think it's a fair question to ask ponder what he wants from them as he calls to them for mercy. They can't reverse his earthly losses. Only God can do that. They can't give him the hope of eternal life that would come from being vindicated by God, because again, only God can do that. But what they can do is support him in his sorrow. They can speak words of comfort to him. But that can only happen if they are convinced that he is a child of God whom God loves. And I would argue that what Job really wants is to be loved by his friends and relatives. That's the mercy that he desires. Mike Mason, in his book, The Gospel According to Job, he writes this. He says, the greatest mystery in the book of Job is not why Job suffers, but why a man crippled by suffering is forced to fight a long drawn-out theological battle with people who are supposed to be his friends. Or to pose the same puzzle in contemporary terms, why is it that in most churches people who are in deep need find so little real help? Why doesn't the Church of Christ, whose beliefs are supposedly grounded in love, have more love in it? Paul wrote that believers should be taught to be, quote, sound in faith and love and in patience, Titus 2.2. Yet as D.L. Moody commented on this verse, quote, the church has been very jealous about men being unsound in the faith. If a man becomes unsound in the faith, they draw their ecclesiastical swords and cut at him. 
but he may be ever so unsound in love, and they don't say anything. Why is this so? Why is the commandment of Jesus to love one another so watered down and ignored? Why do Christians waste precious time and energy wrangling over a whole host of other less important issues? End quote. The author Mike Mason goes on to explain that, of course, for real love to exist between Christians, there has to be a foundation of faith in the great doctrines of the Bible, but this in no way should take away from the fact that the fulfillment of the law is love. Mike Mason also has a very provocative chapter titled VIP, and he asserts in that chapter that the most important person, the, 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 the most important person in the church is the one who is suffering. That sounds odd, doesn't it? But his argument goes like this. The Bible teaches that the church is a body analogous to the human body. And if a part of the human body becomes injured, suddenly the most important part of that body becomes the injured part. He gives the example of his foot being injured, and he's in great pain, and how ludicrous it would be if the brain just decided that pain doesn't matter and just ignores the the injury and focuses on trying to amuse itself with mathematical puzzles. This is analogous, he says, to people who ignore, try to ignore the problems in their lives that are destroying them. And in the same way, people in the church refuse to deal with the suffering in their midst. People don't know what to say. They don't want to bother. Or they've already concluded, like Job's friends, that the injured one is suffering as a result of his own sin or foolishness, and he needs to just deal with it on his own. Imagine the body as a whole saying to an injured foot, you know, sorry, buddy, you're going to just have to deal with this injury on your own. We're going to go on like this never even happened, and somehow you will recover or not. Job's friends, rather than loving Job, have judged him. They, they, it appears that they, it's like they're calling is to support what God has done. And they've reasoned, even if subconsciously, I must not oppose God who clearly has it out for Job. If I stand in the way of God's judgments and offer encouragement to an enemy of God, it's possible God's going to come against me. And so the sufferer is left in the lurch as his potential helpers walk by on the other side. And notice that even the failures of his friends are placed by Job within the realm of God's sovereign control. Verse 13 reads, He, that is God, he has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. So Job does not separate or isolate God from any aspect of his life, not even from how his friends and relatives are treating him. But then this means for Job that God must be the one who has determined that he get no mercy, not from any source which makes his struggle with God all the greater. So why? Our second point is why. Why is Job calling for mercy? Because no one, not God, not his friends, not one person, is willing to show him love. And he expectantly longs for such loving help. Which brings us to the response. What is Job's response to what's happening in his life? And at this point, I am first of all directing your attention to verses 22 through 24, then we will consider those very well-known and powerful words of verses 25 through 27, wherein Job expresses confidence and 
God's covenant faithfulness and this redeemer that he has in God. In verses 28 and, and 29, Job warns his friends of what happens to those who oppose those whom God loves. And uh, in these verses, Job expresses what he believes by faith will happen as a part of the vindication of his cause. So first, Job's response is to directly address his friend's lack of mercy. We find that in verse 22. He says, Why do you like God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? If you think about it, in a sense, Job would have been very satisfied with the mercy of his friends just leaving him alone. But instead, they've pursued him, which means that they've gone out of their way to torment him. Job's perspective is that God has pursued him already in order to judge and destroy him. His friends are intent on helping God in this. Somehow this brings them pleasure. He can't figure out why they are insistent on going out of their way to add to his misery. And he asks specifically here, why are they not satisfied with his flesh? In other words, isn't my physical suffering enough? Why, so-called friends, do you have to torment me emotionally and spiritually with all of these accusations of sin? And Christopher Ashe, in his commentary, he suggests that what bothers Job is that he knows that his friends are not going to be satisfied with just his death. But they will be sure to slander him after he is gone. What they want to destroy is his reputation. And Ash, he presents the hypothesis that they will want to put on Job's gravestone something like this. Quote, here lies Job, who was a sinner with secret sins he refused to confess. He has paid the penalty for his sins at last. The justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. End quote. And this prompts Job's second response of great longing. Oh, that my words were written Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So what are his words that he once written? I believe it's what he's been saying here and all along, essentially his defense as a genuine believer who has trusted in God for the forgiveness of his sins, who has walked with God faithfully, Job is willing to go to his grave boldly insisting that he has not done some secret sin to deserve judgment. He is not ever going to rescind his claim on God's grace as a justified sinner. He is willing to have his claim recorded in the most permanent way possible by having his words etched in rock. Now, it sounds like he starts out with the desire to have his words simply recorded in a book, which would have probably been some kind of papyrus roll. But, um, but then he changes his mind in order to choose something more permanent. He wants a monument to his convictions. By faith, he knows that in death, God is going to sort all of this out to his benefit. And what he won't give up on is his faith in the promise of God to forgive him. He will not give up on the hope that he is a child of God. He refuses to admit that his friends are right, and he is willing to put his claim on record for all time. The basis of this hope is explained by Job in verses 25 through 27, as he thinks about his 
hope of vindication being etched in stone forever, his mind turns to his eternal God, his God whom he trusts to be his redeemer. He asserts by way of contrast with what his friends believe, and I'm trying now to capture the Hebrew, he says, but I, or but as for me, I know that my redeemer lives. His friends have insisted that God is against Job, that there's no such thing as redemption for Job. And Job is now strongly asserting what he knows to be true for him, which by implication calls into question his friend's understanding of God, what he believes. We want to consider now under three points. What he believes is true regarding himself. First of all, Job insists he has a living redeemer. Verse 25, for I know that my redeemer lives. Redeemer is basically one who restores. Talking about the most very basic understanding of a goel or redeemer in the Old Testament. One who restores or one who puts something back into its original or pristine condition. The idea of a redeemer developed in the life of Israel into someone's next of kin who fulfills certain tasks to help you when you run into trouble, which is referred to as a kinsman redeemer. So, for example, if you were murdered, your kinsman redeemer would make sure that your murderer was punished. If you ran into financial trouble and had to sell off part of your inheritance, your kinsman redeemer could buy it back. If you had to be sold into servitude because of a financial debt, your redeemer could pay for your release. If your widow was childless, the kinsman redeemer could marry her and give her a child in order to perpetuate your line to keep your inheritance in the family. Redeemer was one who would stand for you when you could not stand for yourself. And often the solution to the problem involved the payment of a price, and so the idea of a redeemer came to mean someone who pays a ransom price to set you free from slavery or from some other entanglement. One of the most beautiful illustrations of the concept of a redeemer came out of the history of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer who took up the cause of Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth in order to buy back Naomi's land, in order to marry Ruth, in order to raise up a male heir who could inherit that land and keep it in the family in the future. And like Ruth, we don't deserve to gain the attention of our kinsman redeemer. God takes us to himself as his bride in order to lovingly care for us and to spare us from spiritual poverty. And so Job, through eyes of faith, sees God as his redeemer. Notice the contrast here. He's been talking about his earthly kin. His earthly kin, they won't help him. But he envisions God being his kinsman redeemer and doing what they won't do. Job says he will see God, and he's talking, you notice, about his Redeemer, and so he's looking to God himself as his Redeemer. And the wording, my Redeemer lives, or my Redeemer is living, or even my Redeemer has life, that's language used in Scripture of God living forever, which is clearly in contrast to the brevity of life that Job is describing even this engraving of a message in stone, even those engravings eventually weather away. It's not really forever. 
But more personally, Job envisions himself dying and his flesh being destroyed. But in contrast is his redeemer who lives eternally. God is eternal. The son of God is eternal. Jesus, the incarnate son, was eternal as the word. And uh, the incarnate son has risen from the dead and he lives forever. And Job, by faith, knew that the eternal triune God is not affected by death and is thus able to be our redeemer forever. Death will not stand in the way of Job being able to experience the promises that God has made. And second, Job knows that at last his redeemer will stand on the earth. It's very interesting. You may have a footnote in your Bible there that this word earth could very well be translated dust. It's the very same word that's used in Genesis. God created us from dust. To dust we shall return. And so some have presented to us, some some commentators have suggested this wonderful picture that Job is envisioning his redeemer standing on his grave, on his dust. That's a powerful picture of God's power over death. And then we have that word stand. He knows that at last his redeemer will stand on the earth. This word stand means to stand up. It's a legal word that's used of someone taking the stand in order to act as a witness. It's been Job's desire for some time that God will provide a surety and a mediator who will act as a witness to Job's justification before God. He hopes now that God will function as a kinsman redeemer to help him. The fulfillment of Job's desires is possible, you understand, only through the incarnation of the Son of God. We've already considered this. Otherwise, how can God argue a case with God? How can God be his own mediator? Jesus being God and man in one person is what allows him, who is God, to also represent us as man. Even this idea of God being a kinsman redeemer would be impossible except that the incarnate son of god is our kin being a human being sharing in our nature so when will this take place that's the great question of this text really that people wrestle with when will this take place at the last in verse 25 is the key phrase for i know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth or stand upon the dust at the last really means afterward. In the, Greek, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's, the word is afterward. And we wonder what's in mind. After what? After Job's death? After Jesus returns to this earth to raise the dead? After Jesus returns and brings the new heaven and new earth? Our translation, at the last, sounds like at the last day. Uh, the King James put it that way. The last day, the day of the Lord's return, though the word day is not in the text. We can say with certainty that Job knows that sometime in the future, his Redeemer will stand upon the earth and perhaps even upon his grave. And third, he knows that he will see, he will see his Redeemer God with his own eyes. Three times, notice, three times he speaks of seeing God in verses 26 and 27 he says and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh i shall see god whom i shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another my heart faints within me 
What he envisions is not as simple as seeing God in his soul at death. Job's faith tells him that one day he will in his body have the encounter with God that he longs for, an encounter where God will meet with him and he will know that all is well. For the God that he envisions seeing will be his redeemer, God of mercy. And if Job is to see God in his flesh after he dies, then he knows that death will not be the end of his relationship with God. This is why historically we've seen in these words of Job an anticipation of the resurrection of the dead. And notice how Job's response to the thought of finally meeting up with God is not one of fear. He's not bought into what his friends have told him. If he had, he would have been utterly terrified of dying and of meeting up with God. But instead, by faith, he believes God will be his redeemer. Instead of being filled with fear, he's actually filled with awe and excitement as he thinks of one day seeing God with his own eyes in his own flesh. His joyful anticipation is expressed there in his words, my heart faints within me. Job is confident of his future. He wants his testimony of faith etched in stone for posterity. Now imagine if he had actually sinned. Imagine if he was hiding his sin and then had not guilty etched in stone under his name. That stone would stand as a monument to his pride. It would stand as a monument to his lack of repentance. That monument would call down judgment on him. But as he knows he is not guilty in the sight of God, based on what he knows of God and the covenant promise of justification through faith in the coming Christ, he's willing to put his faith on display. To etch his testimony, if you think about it, would be like making an oath, where if he is wrong, his testimony is right there in stone as a witness to call down judgment on himself. Job is confident that judgment doesn't await him. It's actually in verses 28 and 29 that he warns his friends of judgment. They continue to pursue him by attacking him, insisting that the root of the matter, the root cause of all of his suffering is found in him, in his sin and rebellion. He says that they need to be afraid of the sword of God's judgment because God does not look with favor on those who attack his children. And Job is bold because Job has faith. He believes God has touched him. At the same time, he believes that someday all will be made right. And just as faith gives us the boldness to confess our sins to a holy God and to seek his pardon, so Job's faith gives him the boldness to long for vindication from a God who appears to be against him. But that is exactly what faith does. It allows you and me to rise above our fears of judgment in order to lay hold of the mercy that God has for us in Jesus Christ. God hears our cries for mercy, and he will show us mercy, even in bringing us through death into his glorious presence where we will be with him forever and ever, in body and soul. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being our redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ, for being that one who has extended mercy to us. Father, we are sinners. We are worthy of condemnation. We thank you, Father, for what Christ has done as our kinsman redeemer, paying the price to set us free from slavery to sin, setting us free from judgment. 
that we can boldly come to your throne of grace and find mercy to help in time of need. Father, we thank you for the boldness that faith gives us to trust in you, to trust against um, our, our feelings, to trust against our experiences, or sometimes it feels as though you are against us. Father, we thank you that in Christ we can know that you are for us always in all things. We understand that Satan hates us, that he is active, he is powerful, but Father, we thank you that even through what Satan does, you work your mighty work of grace in our lives. We thank you that you had a purpose for Job's sufferings, even to have his testimony recorded for us in Scripture. It's not etched in stone that we know of, but we know that it was etched in your word, that we can read it now and can know that he is a man of God, a man of faith who trusted despite all that he was going through. And so, Father, give us strength, give us encouragement through the example of Job, We thank you for our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day stand upon our graves, upon our dust, if we die before he returns, and who will raise us from the dead, and we will see him in our own flesh, with our own eyes. Father, we thank you for this hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.